0: Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful. So thankful that, Father, you have enabled your people through your spirit to trust and obey. We thank you for the working of your spirit in us. We thank you for the joy, the complete joy, that is walking in Christ. Father, we pray as we continue in an attitude of worship, in a study of your word, that your Holy Spirit would teach us, and that you would strengthen us in the faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. One of the many blessings of being a Christian is to have assurance of salvation Christians can enjoy assurance that they have been forgiven and will be with Christ forever they can rest assured that the penalty for their sins has been completely paid by Jesus and that the guilt of their sin has been taken away so let me start with a couple questions this morning. How confident are you that your sins have been forgiven? I want you to be able to answer that question this morning. How certain are you that you are known by Christ, that you are one of his sheep? Because if you have been enabled to repent and to trust in the finished work of Christ, the Bible is clear that assurance is yours. In his book, The Reformation and Assurance, Sinclair Ferguson writes this. He writes, quote, Assurance is the conscience confidence that we are in a right relationship with God through Christ. It is the confidence that we have been justified and accepted by God in Christ, regenerated by the Spirit and adopted into His family, and that through faith in Him we will be kept for the day when our justification and adoption are consummated in the regeneration of all things. End quote. Assurance. The confidence that we are no longer an enemy of God but now a child of God. To be able, church, to rest in that. To enjoy that truth. In knowing that God is for us and that Christ's blood has redeemed us and that his righteousness covers us. You know, it's Sadly, on the flip side, there are many who are false converts, who don't truly know God, and they are deceived, and yet they don't struggle with assurance at all. They think they're just fine. They trust in some form of outward action. Perhaps at some point in their life, they've repeated what was known as the sinner's prayer. Or perhaps they came forward during an evangelistic rally. Or, as many of us have, perhaps they have just grown up in a Christian family. And take that for granted, that since they've grown up in a Christian family, that by default, they are a Christian. Now, while there are many false converts that hold a strong assurance that is unfounded, There are also many genuine Christians that lack assurance. That is not how God desires for us to live. God wants his people to know that they are his. Not a, a, a guessing or a I hope so, but that I am certainly his. And possessing a strong assurance of salvation strengthens the believer's resolve to glorify God and to enjoy Him. But how do you know for certain? How, how, how do you know for sure? How, how can you have full assurance? I mean, isn't that just arrogant? Isn't that just boasting in maybe yourself? The Bible would say, our boast is in Christ alone in his finished work. And as we'll see this morning, how can we have confidence is because God's grace works in believers life. In all of their lives, his spirit is working, which gives them evidence of salvation. And that evidence strengthens their assurance. This morning, the title of the sermon is Abiding in Christ. We're returning to our study in 1 John chapter 2. If you Open up to 1 John chapter 2 this morning. As you get to 1 John chapter 2, if you would rise to your feet to honor the public reading of God's Word. 1 John chapter 2, we'll read verses 3 through 6 this morning. we read in verse 3 of chapter 2. And by this... Ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. So reads God's holy, inerrant and infallible word. Please be seated. Now you must be so careful this morning not to take a sound bite out of the Bible. We can be led astray by just taking sound bites out of any conversation or any communication, and especially of the Bible. And so we must put it back in context. What is the point of John writing this letter? What was the overarching theme for him to write this? It was assurance. That believers know that they have eternal life. If you're just joining us this morning you haven't been here with us as we've studied through this letter of 1 John... This fact is found in the last chapter of 1 John, chapter 5, verse 13, where John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. No guessing, no no, I hope sos, but that you may know, that you might have full assurance that you are His. That's John's point for writing. And throughout this letter of 1 John, time and time again, he writes that believers might know that they have this assurance. And he writes by various tests, ways that we can examine the fruit in our life that would encourage us and strengthen us to know that we are Christ. He writes about the things that we believe, the things that we believe about Christ, Christ. He writes about how we obey Christ, how we love him, how we follow him. Now, as he writes this and he pens this letter, remember his his intention is to encourage us as believers that we have assurance of our salvation. But as he writes to assure the believer, guess what happens to the unbeliever or the false convert. He exposes the error of their way. But the intention is not to rattle us from our assurance in Christ. The point is to strengthen us in that very fact that those who are His know that they are His. And He points out that there is fruit in the believer's life, that it's evident that God's Spirit is in them. We must be very careful as we look at verses 3 through 6, not to misconstrue what John is talking about, we must understand what the Bible says about salvation. That we can in no way earn salvation. That it is not based upon our works. Not in any way. Nothing that we do merits or deserves heaven and nowhere in Scripture does it say that we must prove ourselves worthy of the gospel in order that salvation might occur. As a matter of fact, we know that Jesus came to save sinners. Wretches. Those who cannot save themselves. And yet there is much confusion about assurance. Assurance. For some of you who grew up in a Catholic church, perhaps that has brought some confusion along. The Catholic Church teaches that God has done his part in salvation, and now you have to hope that you can do your part, which you never know if you're able to fully do. It is both God and you, which is a work of salvation in that teaching. Church, that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that salvation is a work of God, and it is a gift of God, that it is not about our works, not any of our works. Let me give you just a few examples this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, many of you are very familiar with these. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You a note taker? Make sure you got that one down. Ephesians 2:8:9. It's not of our works, it's not a result of anything that we have done. Salvation is a gift from God. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God saved us? Why? Not because of any of our works, but because of His grace and for His purposes. We read also in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. That we were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy." Can we start there as a baseline? That salvation is entirely a work of God. That salvation is a gift of God. That salvation is not based upon any of our works. The Bible would speak of us being as dead in our trespasses and sins. But it's because of God's love, because of His mercy, because of His grace, that He gifts repentance. And faith to his people. This is a work of God. God takes these people and he turns them from darkness to light. They go from walking in darkness to walking in the light. They go from being blind to the things of God to those who now can clearly see. They go from hating God to loving God. Transformation is evident in the life of of God's people, and it's that transformation, the evidence of it, that strengthens our assurance that we are his people. We see him working in us. We see the transformation he's made in us. The converted slave trader, John Newton, he knew of this transformation, and he said of himself, quote, I am not what I ought to be, but I am not what I once was. And it is by the grace of God that I am what I am, end quote. He experienced transformation. He had been gifted with salvation in Christ. And so in this letter that we are studying through, John is arguing that there is a correlation between knowing God and loving God, and between loving Him and obeying Him. I want to stop there. This does not earn salvation. Obedience doesn't bring forth salvation. Obedience is evidence. It is fruit that you are truly saved. Do we understand? We can't get these backwards. So this morning as we look to these verses, verses 3 through 6, we'll see three responses in the believer's life that strengthens their assurance. Remember, John's point is that you might know that you have eternal life. That you might rest in God. That you might enjoy Him. And as we look at these three points, they are not isolated points, but they're all interrelated. They, they overlap one another. I, I've broken them down as these three. Obeying Christ loving Christ, and following Christ. So let's look at the first one, obeying Christ. Look again in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. The Apostle John writes this. He says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. John begins here with a focus on knowing God. It is safe to assume and to infer or to imply here, especially upon this quotation in verse 4 that says, I know him, that the false teachers of John's day were teaching that salvation was gained through some type of knowledge. It was a higher knowledge, a special enlightenment. And so John is addressing that. He uses a form of the word no 42 times in this letter. In just these four verses, he uses the word no four times. He's making the point that to know God is not based on mere intellectual knowledge alone. He is arguing that to have a knowledge of God is not a knowledge about God. But it's those who would genuinely know God that they also obey God. There is fruit. There is evidence. Apparently, during the time that John penned this, there were those teachers coming in saying, I know him. And yet they did not obey him. And so John flat out says, they are liars. He says, the truth is not in them. He says, these men are not to be trusted. Their lack of obedience has testified to their lack of genuine knowledge of God. Paul writes a similar statement when writing to Titus. He says in Titus chapter 1 verse 16, he says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You shall know them by their fruit. You can see in the believer the work of the Spirit through them. But a life of disobedience, a life that is known as a life of disobedience, is evidence that one does not truly know God. Though they may profess to know God, and though they may get a whole bunch of answers right when watching Jeopardy on the Bible, If their life is evidence of one of disobedience, their works expose them that they are not in the truth. JC Ryle said this. JC Ryle said, quote, where there is no sanctification, there is no regeneration. And where there is no holy life, there is no new birth, end quote. There's evidence in the life of believers. For us, beloved, who are in Christ, that encourages us. When we see the fruit of God's Spirit within us, it gives us assurance of our salvation. But again, John writes, there are those who say, I know him, and yet they don't obey him. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this in Matthew 7, verse 21. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What is he speaking about? Those who genuinely know him will obey him. That there will be evidence of his spirit within them. This is not a work that we put on ourselves. It's not that we strive in our own power and say, somehow I need to obey. It is evidence that his spirit is within us, working in and through us for his good pleasure. John writes in his gospel in John chapter 3, verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I want to read that again john 3:36. whoever believes in the son has eternal life there it is assurance if there's genuine belief there's genuine transformation through the spirit but the flip of that john writes whoever does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of god remains on him I meaning if there's not transformation it means it's because there was no regeneration because you have not received a new heart in the Spirit of God. Spurgeon would say of this, Spurgeon said, "Quote The man that says, I know Christ, and does not keep his commandments, is making his own damnation sure. He signs, seals, and stamps it every day. By his profession of being a follower of Christ, he confesses that he knows what he ought to be, Yet by his actions, he proves that he is not what he ought to be, and so he is bearing witness against himself, judging himself, condemning his own soul and challenging the dread sentence of everlasting perdition. "God save us from such a lie as this," End quote. False assurance holds our hand all the way to complete and full damnation. John makes it clear for us who are the beloved, who are, for us who are in Christ, that we can have assurance because we see the evidence of His Spirit working in us. So look again at verse 3 of 1 John chapter 2. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep... His commandments, which means to know Him is to obey Him. There's that direct correlation. Even what many of us have referred to as the Great Commission, to go and make disciples. Listen to what Jesus says. He goes, says in Matthew 28, 19, 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, that means to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That Christ would be the one that enables change, a transformation of their lives, of our lives. Jesus himself taught his disciples that they are to trust and obey, just as we just sang. Those whom the Father draws to Christ in faith experience a radical internal change that leads to an outward change. James would say this. In James 2:14, James says, "What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? A handful of verses later in verse 17 of chapter two, James says, so also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I mean, it means there's no evidence of it. There's no fruit of it. In a recent house that we lived in, we had a bunch of fruit trees in the backyard. And people often ask me, what kind of fruit is that? And I could not remember what fruit was on each tree. But you know when I did know what fruit or what kind of tree it was? When it produced fruit. And I said, oh, that's a lemon tree. (laughs) Well, that's an orange tree. How did I know that? Not because I have a degree in anything that has to do with plants or anything else, but because I looked at the fruit. The fruit testified to what type of tree it was. And so it is of the believer. As we look and examine our own lives, if we see the fruit of God in our lives, guess what? We have full assurance That we are his. And he desires for us to have that assurance. We're not to say, oh, I'm not sure. I I don't know. Do you see the fruit of Christ in your life? And that strengthens assurance. Obedience. And good works. They're the mark of the believer because of what God has done inwardly in us. In Jeremiah 31 verses 33 and 34, which, by the way, is also quoted in Hebrews chapter 8. Jeremiah 31, 33-34, God writes, "For, For this is the covenant that I will declare and make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. Here, God says, I will be their God. They will be my people. It's not a maybe, it's not a hope so. It's a promise. In Ezekiel 36, 26, we see how this is done. We read, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What does that mean? It means to every person who repents and turns to God and believes in the Lord Jesus for salvation, to them are given a new heart and the spirit of God that's what creates that inward change that's what drives the outward good fruit it's because what god has done inwardly in them is evidenced outwardly through fruit elsewhere in this letter of first john john equates truly knowing god as abiding in god if you flip over to first john chapter three just probably a page ahead from where you are in first john and Lord willing we'll get there at some point and study it in deeper detail but 1 John chapter 3 verse 24 Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us You see you see those who truly know God those who have fellowship with God are those who obey God. It's the same correlation he's making. And when a believer obeys God, it assures them that God's Spirit dwells within them. That as the Bible says, they are quote-unquote in Christ. That they are in Him. The evidence of God's Spirit. Paul would argue to the Romans that if you do not have the Spirit of God, that you're not His. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, he writes and says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And just a handful of verses later, in Romans 8:16, he says, The Spirit Himself dwells bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What he is saying is the same thing, that there should be evidence that we are God's children. And that evidence comes forward from the Spirit of God that dwells in us. It is him working in us and through us for his good pleasure. John writes, that's called obeying. It's obedience. It's this evidence that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if you see that evidence, you can rest assured that you're his child. I mean, think about this. Brother or sister, why do you even desire to please God? Why is there even a desire? Because of the work he's done in your heart. He's regenerated you. He has saved you. He's given you the desire to want to obey Him. But here's the thing for us as believers. Our obedience is imperfect. So what do we do when we read something like this? That those who know God obey His commandments. Because even us with who have been regenerated, given a new heart, have a desire to please him, evidence that we are his, we still do so, so imperfectly. I'm going quote Spurgeon again. Spurgeon said this, by reason of the fall, we can, cannot perfectly keep the commands of Christ, but the heart keeps them as the standard of purity, and it would be perfect if it could. The Christian's only desire is to be exactly like Christ. It pains him that he falls short of his image. It gives him great joy if he can feel that the Holy Spirit is working in him anything like conformity to the divine will, end quote. What does that mean? It means as we see God remotely working in us that we see evidence of fruit. It's not that when I went in my backyard and I looked at the lemon tree that it had a thousand lemons on it that I said, now you're a lemon tree. <laughs> the moment... One lemon came forward. I knew it was a lemon tree. Are you following me? If you are his, you will see fruit that you are his. It may not be bunches and bunches and bunches, but there will be fruit. Fruit that is not of your flesh, but is of him. So John is so clear here saying, look, if you truly know him, You will obey him. And though, albeit, it will be imperfect. Joel Beakey ties the assurance to our obedience. He says this, he says, quote, "The the Christian cannot enjoy high levels of assurance while he persists in low levels of obedience. If we willfully disobey, that's when we begin to doubt. We must go back to what John is writing. Assurance based on obedience. Do we see fruit, evidence of God's spirit within us? Giving us a desire to obey. Giving us the ability to obey. Because that is the first evidence that John ties here is obedience. The second one that he says that will strengthen our assurance is loving Christ. And so look. Back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 5. He says, But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. John moves from those who know God, obey God, onto those who obey God is because they love God. Now, there's a correlation. Those who obey God, love God. And those who love God, obey God. Back and forth. Do you know who's the perfect example of this? Christ, our Lord. In John chapter 14. Actually, you know what? Go ahead and turn to John 14. John, the same author that penned this epistle, will go back to his gospel. So go back to John, the gospel of John, chapter 14. John 14, I want us to look at this example of Christ in verse 31. John 14, verse 31. Jesus speaking says, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. What did Jesus just model? That if you love, you obey. He says, I've modeled that. I, I love the Father, and that's why I keep His commands. And, and so then the argument John is going to make in his letter is saying, if we know Him, we too will demonstrate love through obedience. And you say, well, how does that work? Stay in John chapter 14, the gospel. I want you to see the words of our Lord Christ. Uh, go back to verse 15. John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus speaking says, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Stop there. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Just as he modeled in verse 31 says, look, I love the Father and I keep his commandments. He's saying, look, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And just in case we don't understand the first time we're told something, look down to verse 21. John chapter 14, verse 21. Again, he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What does he say? If you love him, You're going to keep his commandments. Just in case two times is not enough, let's keep going. Down to verses 23 and 24. Jesus still speaking. He answers and says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Three times the Lord Jesus said, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And just in case we didn't understand it going that way, he reversed it. And he said, But if you don't, you won't. makes it very clear. This is not... Us somehow sitting there and going through some worldly meditation of, I've got to love the Lord, I've got to love the Lord, I've got to love the Lord. It is not a working of the flesh. It is evidence of His Spirit within us that would give us a love for Him. Stay in John's Gospel, next chapter, in chapter 15. In verse 10. We read, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Living out the Spirit of Christ. A few verses later, John 15, 13, he explains further. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Beloved, we need to realize that our our love for Christ is not fueled by fear. Our love for Christ is not fueled by obligation. Our, Our love for Christ is not fueled by trying to earn His favor. Our love for Christ is fueled by His very love. So what does that mean? As sinners, before the new birth, the only love that we had was a selfish, sinful love. Based upon the selfish trinity of me, myself, and I. We had no love for God. But We read in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. And now, as John will write later in this letter of 1 John, we love because he first loved us. It's a response. We've experienced the love of Christ. That though I am a wretch, and though I have done heinous things against a holy God, that God demonstrated his love towards me that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. He laid down His life. He who was tortured and murdered, who, who gave His life as a ransom. It's this Jesus, this Jesus whom we love. It's this Jesus whom we're compelled now to obey. And the fact that we now love Christ, and desire to please Him is evidence that we are a child of God, which strengthens our assurance. We can rest in being a child of God. And though my works are not perfect, and though I feel sometimes as though I'm an orange tree and sometimes produce some sour lemons, that I can rest in the work of Christ in the salvation of Christ. If I see fruit, I can rest assured, as, as Paul would write to the church of Philippi, to the believers there in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 6 of Philippians, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't there great rest in that? Great joy in that? That when we see the evidence of Christ in us, though it be imperfect, that God will bring it to completion. That he who began the work will be faithful to complete it. Evidence that we are his. A desire to obey him. The enablement to obey him. The desire to obey him that's fueled from love. That we love him. That we don't want to grieve him. But also, thirdly, John will argue it's also evidence that following Christ, evidence that we're imitating Him, His example. And so back over to 1 John. Go back to the letter, 1 John. This final point of following Christ, we see at the end of verse 5. John writes, and end of verse 6, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. All right, so, so follow John's argument all the way through. He says, those who know God, obey God because they love God, and it's evidenced by the way that they live. That's what he's arguing here. He's saying all who profess to be in Christ Walk in the same way that Christ walked. It's to follow Christ's example. God's people live as Christ lived. Martin Luther spoke of this. He said this, quote, This should be the sign by which they should know whether or not they are true Christians. Where Christ dwells through faith, there he makes that person conform to him. That is, he makes them humble, gentle and ready to help his neighbor in any need, end quote. See, before Christ, and before the work that his Spirit has done in us, all we cared about is our own neck. All we cared about is our own pleasure, our own happiness. What's in it for me? And yet, through regeneration, now I am concerned about others. Now I'm concerned about the glory of God. Now I desire to please God. John writes, those who know him will walk like him. Jesus said this in Luke nine twenty three. He said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me. I want you to think about that for a moment. Follow who? Follow Christ. How do I follow Christ? I've got to deny myself. Pick up my cross, which means dead man walking, and and follow the example of Christ. Say, well, I thought you said this wasn't in your own strength. I thought this is not a work of you. It is not. It's because you are His. We heard earlier in the first reading this morning from the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus said in verses 27 through 29, My sheep hear my voice. That's why we follow hear his voice he's my sheep hear my voice and i know them and they follow me i give them eternal life and they will never perish no one will snatch them out of my hand my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand oh isn't that good news because if this faith was based upon my perfect obedience, guess what? I'm done. And so are you. But because it's based entirely upon Christ's completed, perfect work on the cross, we can rest in Him. And because he is the one who has begun it, he will be the one to complete it. We can be assured that we have this salvation based upon seeing him working through us. We've talked about obedience. We've talked about a love for him. And then we see here in verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Paul the apostle would write this. He would say, be imitators of me. As I am of Christ. It's first Corinthians eleven one. In in Ephesians five, he would write this in the opening two verses. He would say, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Notice Paul likes to use the word imitator. To imitate is to follow, it's to copy the example of another. And so here's the argument that John is is painting. There's an initiation that then leads to imitation. Initiation. Our salvation is a work of God. It is a gift of God. It is not a result of our works. He has done the work. He has initiated it. And because he has given us faith, because he's given us the gift of repentance, we now are to imitate Christ which means regeneration leads to being like Christ. It's to conform us into the image of Christ. Do you know only those who are in Christ can live like Christ? It's not something you could do in your own power, in your own strength. Why? Because Christ is the believer's source of strength. He is their provision for everything good. We also read that in the the second reading this morning, in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's Jesus speaking. But in him, we could bear much fruit. In him, we could be assured of our salvation because we see him working in us and through us for his good pleasure. Beloved, his spirit now dwells in us. And now by his spirit, we are to walk as Christ walked. You say, well... You don't know my life, and you don't know the internal turmoil that goes on and the the temptation that goes on within me. God does. Christ, put it on flesh, knows temptation. And you know who else? Paul the Apostle wrote about that very type of temptation. Turn with me to Galatians. Last place I'll have you flip this morning. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16, we read, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Stop there. This also should bring us assurance because if there is internal warfare going on within you of I want to please Christ I want to demonstrate my love for him but I also want my way. And that is evidence that his spirit dwells in us. That there is a war going on within us. Continue reading with me. Verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And he goes into verse 19 and says what the works, the bad works, the, the, the bad fruit. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means they don't truly know Him. That all His evidence in their life is works of the flesh. But thank God that He inspired the Apostle Paul to continue writing here. He says, but, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit... Is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Say, well, why did we read all that? Because for those who are His, who abide in Christ, they bear much fruit. And when they see this fruit in their lives, their assurance that they are Christ increases. Love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all evidence of the work of Christ working in you and through you. And it's those times where you see that work in you and you see Christ in you that your assurance in him is so strengthened. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said this. He said, quote, The assured Christian is more motion than notion, more work than word, more life than lip, more hand than tongue, end quote. What does that mean? Means you can see it in them. You see the evidence of Christ in them. You see it by the way they're walking as Christ walked, that they're imitating his example of being kind to others, of being tenderhearted, to forgive one another. That we, as the beloved, are to forgive as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. When we do that, we see the evidence. Of God in us. We see the assurance that we are His because surely that's not something I want to do. I wanted my rights, I wanted to stand firm. But forgiveness, that's of God. And when we see Him working through us in obedience, in desiring to love Him and And to keep his commandments and to to follow his example, we stop and slow down and we could be in awe that God is working in us and that we are his children. So a pop quiz. In case you checked out a little while ago and you're like, that was a whole lot. Here's a pop quiz. Which of the following, I'm putting you back in school. Which of the following guarantees your assurance as a child of God? Is it A, you have been baptized? Is it B, you attend church regularly? Is it C, you read the Bible daily? Is it D, you pray regularly? Is it E, you give generously to the church? Or is it F, you have repented and trusted in Christ's finished work on the cross? Church? I hope you get this one right. Because salvation is not based upon any works of ours. It's based upon the perfect work of Christ. It's what he has done. It is finished. And so with that said, John argues that you can know that you're his, that you can have assurance. And so which of the following strengthens your assurance of salvation? Is it A, obeying Jesus? Is it B, loving Jesus? Is it C, following Jesus? Or is it D, all of the above? we've gone somewhere this morning. For those who are his, they completely agree with what Paul the Apostle declared in Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the believer. I am now in Christ. Beloved, you are now in Christ. The assurance of salvation is because of what he has done Through Christ Jesus. God has done in Christ. And so this morning, may you pause and may you look at the evidence of God working in you and may you rest and rejoice that he who has begun a good work is faithful to complete it. Let's pray. Father, as we look at A passage that tells us if we know you, we will obey you. And yet, being here and knowing that you have regenerated us, seeing evidence of that in us, we still know that our obedience is imperfect. Father, help us to rejoice in seeing the evidence you give us. The evidence of obedience The evidence of a love for you and your son Jesus. The evidence of walking as Jesus walked. The evidence of your love in us. That we no longer respond out of fear. We no longer are responding out of obligation. But our response is out of love. Father, I pray for every believer here this morning that you would give them rest in their assurance. That when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant, it is finished. Father, I also pray for anyone here this morning who has a false assurance. Someone who would boast that they know you, and yet their works would testify otherwise. I pray, O God, that you would draw them to repentance and faith today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.